My name is Dina Leone. I'm from City Reach, Cleveland. Um, some we, we were chatting a little bit before. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, so it's hard for me to, I hesitate to say where am I from, because I lived a really long time in Pittsburgh my whole life, except for four years ago. Moved to Cleveland to be a part of City Reach Church. If any of you know Pastor Justin and Susie Maslenka, they're the lead pastors there, so um, they're also from Pittsburgh. I just felt like they're anointing now. Um, <laughs> knew them a long time in ministry, so from um, Pittsburgh, live in Cleveland. I actually like Cleveland. I don't know. I don't know what all the bad rap is. Yeah. I do. I like it. Anyone else here from Cleveland today? Yes, you are. Okay. No, awesome. My son lives there. Okay. Yeah, it's, all, it's all actually awesome. Um, my role is as an administrative slash associative pastor, associate, associate pastor. You get used to saying that. Um, uh, and I function, um, you know what it's like. We're an urban church, um, not a mega church either. So, you know, that's a minimized version of anybody's role. When anybody asks you what you do, right, it's tough. But that's primarily what I, I do. I do some teaching, on all that sort of thing. I was a social worker for 10 years before I went into full-time ministry. Full-time ministry. That was ministry um, of a different sort. I actually learned a very a lot that was related to what I thought I knew about ministry in that field. Worked with the um, elderly population and um, went into homes, did assessments and helped them, got on the front lines of that kind of world. And now that I'm older and no more, I think of some of the things I didn't think, wow, glad I was young and dumb. <laughs> didn't process in my own understanding. I just went, you know, um, but it was great. So then I, and then I went into a faith-based nonprofit for several years, um, serving there as a director and working through churches. So I've been connected to ministry in some way since I um, have come to know Jesus. So tell me, we're going to um, just do a little bit of intros. We're not going to go one by one. Um, and all the introverts said, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, just, we'll get a gauge for who's in the room. Um, your, a little bit of your background, and then we'll have a little word of prayer, and then we'll get into the material for today. Sound good? Okay, so how many of you are in an administrative role now? Okay, administrative pastoral role as well. Yeah, okay. How many of you are in full-time paid ministry? That's, that's your bread and butter um, for bills. Okay, just a couple. The rest are, are you serving in volunteer positions? Wow, that's amazing. So I say thank you, um, and actually living out what it is about anyway. Um, God freed me from a lot of separation in my mind and holding myself back when I learned that ministry was ministry, period. Um, so thank you. I know it can be very difficult, and... Um, highly rely on people that give of themselves when it's not their, quote, job um, and actually live their calling out. So thank you. Um, how many of you are in a different role than admin, would you say? Everybody here serves in some... Well, I know Pastor Pete's a lead pastor. What do you, what do you refer to admin? Admin is... What did you say? I said, I guess. I'm going with it. I don't what, know. What, so tell me. Uh, I'm the children's co-director okay. on staff. Okay. So admin, if you're, if you're just focused on admin, you're doing like operations, you're doing organization, you're helping with um, getting systems in place on paper, communications, that sort of thing, versus maybe casting vision or forming strategy or building teams per se, that sort of thing. Um, so how many of you are in more of the um, casting vision, strategic, building, recruiting teams kind of role? Okay. Okay. And how many of you have ever heard of, the, the session title is actually mis, mislabeled, and that was my fault, I didn't correct it. Um, it should read the empowerment dynamic, not the empowerment drama. Have I any, loved it, though. Did you? <laughs> it's, like, yes. it's like a play on words. I let it go, actually, because I was like, maybe, you know, maybe we'll discover something. But um, how many of you have ever heard of that, the empowerment dynamic? Okay, you have. Okay. Have you read the book? Amy, okay. So it's based on a book, and you can write this down. I should have put this in my notes because I, I, I'm borrowing this from things that I have been taught as well as read. And um, so the book that um, the empowerment dynamic is based out of is called The Power of TED, T period, E period, D period, which stands for the empowerment dynamic, the power of that dynamic, right? And the author's name is David Emerald. If you're the kind of person that likes to read, um, learn by reading stories, story format and learn versus a textbook, it's a great book because it's written as a fable of a, uh, one man's journey through this whole process. And then the author captures some of the things that we'll go through today at the end. So if you like that, that's how the book is sort of structured. Sorry? David Emerald, like the Emerald City, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Right. And then the other, so that's where the, what we're gleaning from and I've adopted and, um, amended it somewhat. I've taken some Liberty, um, 
to see how it actually, the spiritual concept and the spiritual truth of God's word and how we see actually the truth of what David, whether he knowingly or unknowingly developed it, um, actually proves scripture um, and we see it in real life um, practical. And then the other um, aspect that we're going to contrast it with is called the drama triangle, the dreaded drama triangle. Have you heard of that? Yeah, if anybody has a background in any kind of like um, counseling, lay counseling, social work, psychology, that's a very common thing. It's been around a long time. Um, there's not a book it refers to, but that's from a man named Stephen Karpman. K-A-R-P-M-A-N. So I want to make sure I'm giving due credit because it's not something you know I've conceptualized. Like I said, I've taken some liberty and added some things, but those are the two main sources. Um, the TED book is the main thing. Um, any questions or um, things you want to ask right now leading in? Okay, let's just, let's just have a couple minutes of prayer because, um, you know, we want, to, we want to honor the Lord and what he's brought us to this morning. Amen. Father, we just come to you. God, we just even in, in a session, in a breakout session, we turn our hearts to you, God, because God, our desire, God, is that we would come to this place and even in the midst of gaining information, God, mostly, God, that we would glorify you, God, that you would equip us. God, we have not come to gain knowledge. We have come, God, that we would be equipped by your spirit for the work of the ministry, God. God, we, uh, we count on you to use this time and this place, this day, God, that we would be equipped, God. We don't want to be better learners. We don't want to be full of more information. God, we want to be equipped through the power of the spirit to do your work better. God, oh God, if we leave here and we're not equipped, what has it been? God, would you, would you equip us to this day? Would you equip us with truth? Would you equip us through your word? Would you equip us through conversation and iron sharpening iron? God, would you equip us, equip your saints today, God? for the work of your ministry, God, to accomplish the calling you have given each one of us, oh God, that's our desire. We count on you, God. Would you give us, would you give us eyes that would see and ears that would hear, God, that we would gain understanding, that we would see, God, how your word, God, speaks to every issue and matter of life. You've given us everything we need <laughs> for godliness, God. We thank you, God, and for living that you've given us everything we need, God. And so we come to you today. We come to you today, God. We have not come to hear from a man or a woman or, or a book, God. We have come to you, the one who is truth, the one who leads and guides us into all understanding, the one who reminds us of your word and your sufficiency, God. And so we come and we present ourselves to you today that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would strengthen us, that you would grow us and that we would leave, God, this place truly, God, able to better minister, God, that we would have an understanding of you, of ourselves, and how to serve others, God. That's our desire. That's our heart's desire. So we come and we present ourselves to you today, God. We present, God, we lay down our presumptions. We lay down what we think we know. We lay down what we want to know and what we want to hear. We lay it all down that we might hear and receive from you and you alone, God. We trust you, God. Would you meet us here in the name of Jesus? Amen. Okay, let's dig in. Yes, Pastor. Just so you know, Pastor John walked by through the door shut. You can, but it says it stays warmer in here. It, it feels pretty warm to me. So the doors cracks. It's up to you. I'm I'm happy with it open. And if you guys feel distracted, you can let me know. Um, this is my dream room for, you know, like I have a little bit of teacher in me. So like when I walked in, I was like, oh, this is my girlhood dream. Like all the tiny. And then I was like, oh, I don't want to sit in at the same time. I was like, I remember what that was like sitting there. But I was like, oh, there's chalkboards and there's a whiteboard and desks. Anyway, um, the scissors, right? Right. This is my, and she has these on her desk, these disinfectant wipes. Anyway. Okay. So let's, let's get into this. Um, I'm hoping that we'll get through. We will, we'll get through what we need to. Um, and I'm open to anything. If you want to connect with me afterwards, I'll give you my contact info. If you want to discuss it more or see how uh, you just want prayer for, for support in, in uh, executing any of this, um, let's touch base. But everybody has one of these handouts, right? you got three pages today. You're actually going to take um, the most of your notes on your second page, which is, looks blank, but this is where you can write... Um, the most for today. Okay, so here's the first thing I want to talk about is perspective. And it's the key starting point of anything. So while I want to talk about these two dynamics that are um, at work in, in our lives and the people around us and how we employ um, 
the empowerment dynamic, right, really the power of God into people's lives is perspective is the foundational thing. Why do you think perspective is a foundational thing in addressing ministry and addressing the people around you and the needs? Why does perspective matter so much? It affects the decisions of what you do? Yeah. It sets a tone. What else? This is going to be, I'm going to do this kind of popcorn stuff, so feel free to. Why, why else is perspective important? Or what is, go ahead. Yeah. It can take the focus off of you or it can put the focus on you. What else? Thoughts about why perspective is important? It can show you God's vision where you are in that. Yeah. It can show you, right? It determines so in the in the in the framework of this, it determines our orientation in life, how we orient ourselves to people how we orient ourselves to circumstances, events, right? It determines our orientation. It t- determines, and orientation just means the direction that you face and you walk in, that you look in, right? So keep in mind, as we talk about this, you'll see that the we're believers in this room. And so we answer those questions, you know, as what we've learned and in, the, in that, um, that mindset of, our orientation being towards the Lord. But how many of you know you've gotten multiple calls, multiple needs, multiple situations, multiple prayer requests at the altar where people's perspective isn't that way? And oftentimes, because it's hard for us to figure out why instead of seeing the effects of that. So perspective is the foundational thing in being able to understand where we are and how we're operating and understand where others are because oftentimes what happens is we encounter these people and we just want to go into ministry mode or need meeting mode or what we might call compassion ministries, right? Without understanding and gaining discernment of what's really at work here. And one of the foundational things is what, how are they orienting themselves to their, their issue? Right, but be, that's because, we, because and we'll see how to be free of that, actually, because if I can understand how someone is orienting themselves, it helps me to address them. It doesn't help me to placate them. Right. It doesn't, but it helps me to speak to it with discernment and wisdom, right? So perspective is, is key. So I want to read these verses from Colossians as a way to inform what our perspective, what our orientation should be, what the scripture tells us it should be. And I am just going to read from, you have two translations there, but I love sometimes the Passion Translation, if any of you have read that. Sometimes it's just, it just captures things so well. So I'm going to read that one instead of um, the top, but you can, you can read the other one too. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above, for that's where Christ sits enthroned at the place of all power, honor, and authority. Yes, feast on the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities and not the distractions of the natural realm. Your crucifixion is with Christ has severed the tide of this life and now your true life is hidden away in God, in Christ or for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, right? So Christ, what do these verses tell us? Christ is in the place, he's enthroned in the place of all power, all honor, all authority. How many times do we, and wait, let me, I won't jump ahead. And we, Ephesians tells us we've been seated with Christ. So he's enthroned in this place. We're seated with him in heavenly places. That's what Ephesians tells us, right? But don't we sometimes feel powerless, Don't we encounter other believers who know the Lord that come and claim powerlessness? I don't have power. I don't know what to do. I can't affect my situation, right? So, but it also tells us what to do in order to overcome that. And that is our perspective. Don't put your eyes on earthly things, the earthly realm. Keep your eyes lifted. Keep your eyes above on the treasures of heaven, right? It's not being in denial of what's here, but it's fixing our eyes not on what's seen, but what's unseen, right? Because this is the truth. Christ is there. We are seated with him and we are hidden in him. If something's hidden, you have to look for it. That all has to do with perspective. 
in a situation, we can get so caught up in, let me figure this out, let me look at all the circles. Like, as a social worker, I was trained to do that. Let me take an assessment of, let me observe what the environment is, right, on what I can see, what I can learn, right, versus fixing my eyes and remembering who I am in Christ is hidden. And I have to look for it, and it takes effort. But i got to keep my eyes there because if I do that, I can recognize for myself and for others, I'm in the place of all power, all honor, and all authority, right? And he is, I'm hidden with Christ in God, right? Okay, so a couple other um, places. I'm just going to read Psalm 121. You can look up the other ones um, there, and I just put a couple catchphrases because most of us know those passages. But Psalm 121 sort of captures this idea of, Christ, our identity in Christ, being seated with Christ, and recognizing Him at work in our lives. So Psalm 129, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. That's perspective. If my eyes are here, can I see what you all are doing at your desk? No. If I lift my eyes here, I can. Right? That's perspective for me because it it creates vision. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. My help doesn't come from you. People's help doesn't come from us. Our help doesn't come from people. Our help comes from the Lord. We got to lift our eyes there, right? Verse 3, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from evil. He will keep your soul. How many of us are dealing with people facing issues of the soul? Their hearts are broken. Their thinking is all messed up. They're making decisions again and again, and you're like, what is happening? But we have to keep our perspective and minister out of this perspective. We'll see how it works when we look at the triangle. The perspective is the Lord is our keeper. The Lord is the one that protects. The Lord is the one that provides, right? He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So that's just a good foundational um, piece to keep in mind. So you tell me. Let's look at the... So here's what it means. is We either operate from a victim orientation or a co-laborer orientation. Now the book calls it creator. There's only one creator, so I, you could say co-creator if you wanted to, but the scripture calls us co-laborers with Christ, right? And so this is, we either orient ourselves to the world around us as victims or as co-laborers. And this all has to do with the perspective that we carry in, into specific situations and overall in our life, right? So now, this is a class or a session about um, drama and drama-free, so let's talk about what relationships, what ministry, what family looks like if it's drama-free. You tell me, you t- give me the characteristics of a drama-free ministry, a drama-free family, a drama-free marriage, a drama-free parenting, a drama-free ministry. Throw, throw up some words. What is drama-free? Peace. Peace. That was my first one, actually. Contentment. Contentment. What else? Drama-free. Integrity. Integrity. <coughs> Anything else? Drama free. Taking responsibility. Mm, that's good. I called that truth. Telling in mind. Transparency. Anything else? I guess I might put that with responsibility. Taking responsibility too. Yeah. Did you? What did you? Was the first word you said? Standing. Oh, extending grace, sorry. Anything else? These are, this is all sort of my thoughts. And because when we face things that create drama, 
there's the absence of all of this. But I want us to start to think of not just like the perils of drama. I want us to get our mind working toward the possibilities of power. Right? That's why I start with this. And don't say, describe what drama looks like. Because you know what? We're prone to think that way anyway. We have to... Our, our People often... When people come to us in ministry or with needs or even in our role, our jobs to solve issues, it's not because they're necessarily coming to bring some good good news. It's coming to bring a problem, right? But we have to continue to, we have to look for this is really what's designed and what's possible. And I'm training my mind. Remember, Philippians tells us, think on these things. Excellent, noteworthy, praiseworthy, right? I don't want to think about how awful drama is. I want to think about how great the power of God is and what he brings about. And this is what we're going for, right? That's why we learn all of this, because all of this becomes possible when we operate in the power of God. So it's not just avoiding or getting rid of the drama in our life. Wouldn't that be nice? But we're going to see that's actually a victim mindset. A victim just wants it all to go away. But a co-laborer works toward a vision. So... While I do do that on your paper, the purpose of getting us here first is to get us oriented right. It's so difficult when people come in extreme circumstances. And this can even translate into like, listen, your leader is asking you for something and it's extreme. Take take the time to form perspective, to gain a co-laborer mindset so then you can enter into it in the power of God and not as a victim. Because this is all possible. It has to be. We know this is possible. You couldn't have come up with this as quickly if it wasn't something you had experienced somewhere. If it wasn't something in the word, right? So we know. So we have to orient ourselves. Listen, challenges are going to come. Deadlines are going to come. There's going to be a lack of resource. And I can think about all of those things and what that creates. That's just a form of drama, right? We'll see the roles that play into that. We'll, but i got to orient myself as a co-laborer. None of us are victims. And if we choose to orient as a victim, then we actually disregard the power of God in our life. We disregard what it says in Colossians. We disregard our seat next to Christ in a place of all power, all honor, and all authority. So it's actually, it's not just this is how we should think. It's because when we operate this way, we forfeit what we, what we say is true of God and we make it irrelevant for ourselves. So that's why this exercise is good, but it's, it's, it's to show you what to do in your situation when something impossible face comes your way, when something overwhelming comes your way, when something out of your control comes your way. This is all still true and possible. Colossians is still true and possible. Oh, I thought you were coming for a paper. <laughs> I'm ready for you. Um, does that make sense? Right? Okay. And so if you read... Um, <laughs> so let's let's answer the next question. What does it mean to you to co-labor with Christ? What does that mean? I'm not going to write this, so don't wait for me. Just let's just What does that mean to co-labor with Christ? Accomplish his vision. Accomplish his vision. What else? What else do you think about? It can mean to endure. What does it mean if you're in the role of a co-laborer? You're doing the work. Are you doing it alone? Are you doing it alone? Who said that? You doing it alone? No. What else? Keep going. I'm watching alone with Christ. See. Yeah. Yeah. Like him, we're we're submitted to the Father. Yeah. I don't know who said that. Sorry. Means we're not the chief builder. There's one chief builder. We co-labor. Our workload looks different, perhaps, but we are co. We're in it together, right? We we do it with him, not ahead of him. Not in spite of what he said, because our idea is better. I've seen this before, Lord. I know this person. They've come fifty times. Co-labor alongside, yoked to walk at the same pace and the same path, right? Any other thoughts? Co-labor. The importance is that we're building this. The, the term comes from 1 Corinthians 3, right? 
co-laborers with Christ on the foundation. There's one foundation laid, the foundation of Christ, and we build on that foundation, not on a foundation of a great book like today. Build on the foundation of the word of God on Christ, right? We build on a foundation. We don't set a new foundation. We guard that, and we should be wise about how we do it. It says we should be wise. Everyone should be careful about how they build, right? Because it will be tested. But we're, co- we're doing it together through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So we don't have to come up with, I don't know how to do this, Lord. He's given us his spirit, which is him. So then we're doing it in that realm together. Make sense? Okay. Any questions or comments right now? Okay. Let's go to the triangles. Are you ready? This is where I'm going to have to like refer to my notes. There was so much to sort of download. Okay. So we're going to actually start with the dreaded trauma triangle. How many of you are old enough to remember DDT? I, do, I know, like, I knew when I put that in there, I was like, nobody's going to be old enough to remember that. It was a toxic agent used, I don't even know, in which war, or or, or one or two, anybody history buff? Um, two? Two? Okay, thank you, Wayne. Um, so that's because it is toxic. To live in this realm, this dynamic, is toxic. And this is where what drama creates. And so these are the three roles that happen in the drama triangle. There's, we're going to start with, let me see how I want to draw this. I guess I'll do it this way. Okay. So this is the victim, which is on your page, right? There's the victim. There's the persecutor. And there's the rescuer. Try to draw a triangle. So let's look at each of these roles and how they present themselves. Now remember, the key thing is how we orient ourselves. So this is based on someone who is has an orientation or a perspective as a victim. So what does that what does that look like? So here's some characteristics. So first, according to the scriptures, I put this one down because Colossians tells us not to fix our eyes on the things that are earthly distractions, right? But fix our eyes heavenward. We're going to see how this is the empowerment dynamic, right? So this is like downward. It's pressure. It's holding down, right? It's it's. It shows you the, the representation of that, right? So their eyes tend to be downward. Why so downcast, oh, oh my soul, right? A, a victim, right? So their focus is on um, issues. Their focus is on self. And I don't know if you're going to be able to read all this. I will try. They feel... They feel powerful or powerless? Powerless. Powerless. They feel helpless. Right? They use things like, this happens to me. I have to. I had to. I didn't have a choice. Right? Everything that is occurring in, in their lives is happening to them. So if you hear people that use that language a lot, I need to. I wish this were, I wish he would, she would, I wish it would, right? Yeah. So I, I guess how do you put that in the context of, you know, I, um, I was a police officer and I worked as a domestic violence mm. advocate, um, sexual assault advocate. So there are legit people who have been incredibly victimized and, you know, there's this whole survivor victim, you know, right. economy. But there are times when victims absolutely need to be allowed to feel like victims because it's not their fault and it's their process in a way. You know what I mean? Right. So I guess I should just, like, so there's not, I mean, are we just making it all negative? No, because we're going to see because, oh, I spelled that wrong. Um the feeling, so being victimized, uh, that is an event, an occurrence, right? An incident doesn't mean that you are a victim. Being victimized, um, the, the thing that determines if you are a victim is when you take that on as your identity and now it forms your response to that event and to future events. That type of person and future 
people that fit that mold, right? So now, instead of this being something I have to work through, now this is just informing my response. Because in the moment, I did feel helpless, or I was helpless. I was powerless. But now if I take that on as the end-all, be-all of who I am, then it forms my response. And actually what I've become is a victim in my identity, and it actually isn't, and, and I know the terminology, obviously, for DV and all that, isn't about being a survivor. We'll see that it's about being a co-laborer with Christ, right? And this can apply because the truth for those who have come to receive Christ is the truth for anyone who has yet to come, is that the same power is possible in them as it was for us. The same grace is available, right? So we can speak to that, and we can help process through the feelings, right? So these are their overriding constant states of being as a victim, Working through and helping them, we'll see these roles up here take on different roles to help them be who they are and who Christ has determined or de- decided and designed them to be. But we're not necessarily convincing them out of being a victim. No, what you're not convincing them out of, yes, you are, but you're not convincing them out of feelings. We don't convince anybody out of feelings. What we do is we convince them of who Christ is in them and who they are and can be in Christ. Feelings don't, like, you can't, I mean, we're made that way. How foolish. For, for so many years, I thought, like, I tried to steer my own life and control my emotions. The control of my emotions is not having them, is not not having them. It's not acting out of them. We have to, we have feelings. And the scripture's filled with expressions of feelings, good and bad, used appropriately and inappropriately. We're made that way. It's about, though, our identity and then our response to life, to people, to circumstances, as who we are, for those of us that know Christ, who we are in Christ, or for those of us who don't yet, who they can be if they give their lives to Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's never about denying the event, right? And we'll talk... So. Yeah, so it's not about that per se, right? Or their experience of it. That's where empathy comes in. Putting yourself in the other person's shoes. There's a need for empathy and compassion and mercy. Christ came in the appearance of a man. Christ, we don't have a high priest who can't relate to us. He, he relates to every struggle and temptation we ever had. He's, he's acknowledging the difficulty of it. He took on flesh and blood so that he could recognize that. And we should do that for others. But at the same time, he still operated as who he was. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and that's an important distinction because I, you know, if you're a black or white thinker, you can be like, okay, then that doesn't matter. Let's get to the what you, you know, who you are. Your feelings, the, your feelings do matter and need to be um, empathized with, need to pr- be processed through. But their personhood in Christ, our identity is hidden in Christ, not who they are as an extrovert or introvert. That's nonsense. Who they are in Christ. Where they're seated in Christ needs to be spoken to more. Okay. Other things about a victim. This is their terminology. Woe is me. Poor me. Right? And a lot of times we might experience this um, with people coming to our churches in need. Like when I did the faith-based nonprofit, it was through a church, and obviously people came in need, financial need. I'm getting evicted. I don't have heat. We have no food, right? But there's a difference when someone comes and has the, the mindset of, poor me. This has happened to me instead of what can I do? Help me to do something, right? But the, and, and so this also helps us to identify ourselves when we fall into this. This is the the nature of all of us at one time or another, and perhaps God will uncover some things um, today and each of us as we walk through the next steps, right? So this is not just pointing the finger at those people, that boss. It's really, it's the speck in our own eye, it really is, right? But it is the way to say, oh, have I fallen? Oh, that's the language. Oh, my goodness. I am acting powerless, Right, and we'll talk about the dynamic that's at work here and how we live in that. Right, um, and this they're motivated. Their motivation. I'm going to do it over here. Their motivation is to um, alleviate. My note. My writing's going to be terrible, but you can alleviate pain motivated by the, I just want to alleviate the pain. 
I just want to alleviate the suffering. And now we can think of that in extreme terms. That could be in um, maybe less extreme terms, but the the anxiety, the pain, the suffering you might feel with the requests made to you by your leaders, by the assignments on your desk, right? My need is I just want to alleviate this, how this is making me feel anxious, how I'm experiencing pain, right? And then their um, force, the force behind it is the fear of pain. Isn't pain fearful? That's why we don't want to face it sometimes. Right? So the force behind it is fearful. Okay. Now, in order to be a victim, there has to be a persecutor. Right? And this can be um, what I'll call real or perceived. Again, there's that perspective, perception word. And this can be a person, an event, a circumstance, a decision, right? Identified as the, the agent that is making me feel powerless, the agent that is making me feel anxious, right? So that's the, the word for that is persecutor. So what they're motivated by, the person playing the role is a sense of dominance. Their motivation is to be a sense of dominance. Oftentimes persecutors have been victims in some way before or been victimized, and they're never going to be that way again. Ever felt that way in your own life? That's never happening to me again. No way. So I am going to dominate. I'm getting out ahead of this. And I'm going to exert my power to do it, right? And so the force behind this is the loss, the fear of the loss of control. And oftentimes, that's what you can actually help people that have been victimized to walk out. Because if, if they fear the loss of control, they miss, they don't understand the truth that we don't have any control as those who walk with Christ. We relinquish that and he controls everything, right? But if you're... if if you see someone identified as this, right, you'll hear a victim talk about that and a persecutor operates out of, I can't lose control here. So I am going to dominate. Does that make sense? And this is, so this is the poor me mentality overall. And they reinforce um, the poor me by saying, pathetic you. in what, how, they, how they act and respond to them. Make sense? And now, if a victim has identified a persecutor and their motivation is to alleviate pain, what do they look for? Rescuer. Who or what can rescue me out of this? Right? So the rescuer, again, can be um, a person. It can be an activity. Right? It can be an endeavor. Sorry for that. I know it's hard to read. This is oftentimes where um, it's not always a person. It can be uh, an indulgence, food, substance, gambling, um, bad relationships, giving ourselves to entertainment, social media, feeding our brains on, right? Because it's rescuing me from this pain and I fear what pain is going to do to me. It's the numbing factor. It's the, it's the rescuing. It's the pulling out. And this, is, this person is the one that operates as savior, right? Here I come. I'm going to save the day for, for that person. But in doing so, they, um, they step in and over the person to just take matters into their own hands. Ever fallen into that yourself in the name of just helping or in the name of they've come a hundred times, let me just put my hands on this. Ah, it takes discipline not to just step in. I know what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. I've said that 50 million times. Ah, and all I'm really doing is I am, I'm reemphasizing, uh, the poor you because I'm saying, uh, I, or poor me, because I am saying, oh, poor you. Poor you. Let me do something about that. Instead of recognizing who we are, who everyone can be and is in Christ, right? They're motivated 
by feeling needed. And the force behind it is the fear of purposelessness. I'm just going to say the fear of no purpose. Or being abandoned or being left out on the sidelines, right? I have no purpose here. That's the fear, right? They end up being the fixer. That's what we classically, sorry guys, you know, we talk about the guys just want to fix it, right? It's a lot, listen, it's a longer process to work. It's, this is tougher. It does require self-discipline. We're going to see, you know, for each of us, man, I'm just going to do this for you. Let me just pay the bill. Let me just do this. Let me just make the call. Let me just talk to your kids for you. So much quicker and easier. But what it does is it denies the power of God in each person. Now, speaking, if we're speaking of believers, let's just contact, right? Or the power of God that can be, it denies the possibility of God's power coming forth because we have now taken it into our own hands, right? But for this to continue, so this is what happens, is this happens over and it just keeps rounding and rounding and rounding, right? So, and this, this triangle, these roles can change back and forth all the time. And often do, particularly if there's like a closed, closed circuit of, of relationship. Those are supposed to be arrows. That's so sad. Anyway, going each way. Um, so in one minute, uh, the person that taught this to me, this is such a classic example, is um, his, he walked into the kitchen and his teenage daughter and his wife were having an argument. And his teenage daughter responded uh, negatively to the mom. And so in that moment, uh, the daughter was identifying the mom as her persecutor because she wasn't getting her way. You won't let me do this, right? And then she acted inappropriately to that because that formed her response. This isn't what I want. I don't like the pain of not getting my way, right? It can be boiled down and it doesn't have to be this hugely traumatic thing, right? Um, And so he walked in and saw the dynamic and guess what he did? Rescued his wife, went in and corrected the daughter immediately. Said, don't talk to your mother that way. Why would you talk to your mother that way? And so now, guess what happened? The daughter, instead of identifying her mother as the persecutor, her dad became the persecutor. Now her dad was persecuting. And now her mom was the victim, right? Like, all, do you see? And that, that changes so quickly and so easily in our minds. Because, listen, when we're, when we're in this type of seeing... In this type of perspective, it's if someone stops rescuing us, then we make them our persecutor and we look for a new rescuer. Haven't we all faced that in some way? Like, and it could be little and it can be big. But the minute you stop alleviating my pain, I I see your person. Now you're persecuting me too. Now you don't understand. You don't understand me now either, right? These all, and then that's why it's a dreaded drama. It just circles and cycles and cycles. Don't we see this? And we, we see this deeply embedded in some families where there's family generations of um, generational curses, generational poor choices of living, right? And it just repeats and repeats. But we do have to see where, okay, where have I, oh, who am I doing this for? <laughs> right? Because what we're doing when we do this is we're actually denying a form of God's power. We're denying, we're misrepresenting who God is. That's a big deal. We don't think we are. I think I'm being merciful. It's a gift of mercy. It's compassion. I just have a heart. I'm really, I'm drawn. It's going to look different. We'll see. Any questions about that? This is going to be the condensed version. Okay. So what we want to do is we want to move from being rescuer to coach what I have on yours? Yeah. Okay. And we want to move from being a persecutor to challenger. Okay. Those are the roles we want to move into. And that mean, and that will make the victim move into the role of co-laborer in their life. It recognizes that that person is endowed with the same power of the Holy Spirit. That person is able to make decisions. That person is able to affect change on their environment. Their environment just doesn't impact them, right? And we see the upward focus. It's a lifting up of a person, right? And instead of a pressing down and a keeping down of a person. We don't think we're doing that, but that's what we could be doing. So sometimes when a victim keeps coming and all we keep doing is paying their gas bill, perhaps we've fallen into a rescue mode. 
Or you don't pay my gas bill and now, so I'm going to go to a different church, right? We can't let that affect us. We have to move up and stay into these roles that were designed in. Okay, so the challenger, let's talk about the challenger. <coughs> and I'll try to go quickly with these. Um, this person is... I'll just tell them and you can write them because it'll take me too long then to do that. Okay, so the challenger is much more assertive and direct in their approach, right? The challenger role, right, versus persecutor, which would come in and say, why, don't talk to your mother that way, that's not, instead takes on the teaching challenger role and say, remember we talked about this. This is, this is how we talk in this house. This is, these are the things that we, right, let me, let me. So the challenger also, when we're working with someone, our role is to try to teach them or inform them. We're a little bit more direct. We'll see how that trend um, looks different than the coach, right? And mainly, the way that I see this role in terms of scriptural truth is as an exhorter. Exhortation. Doesn't mean it lacks encouragement or any of the other things, you know, that we function up. It's mainly ex- exhortation because exhortation is something where we're learning something or we know something and that one that is exhorting us or that challenger is pushing us toward that. And it is challenging, right? It can be a little bit challenging to be pushed towards something new, something hard, something that you know, but was off the radar, right? But the challenger or the teacher serves to function as someone that will exhort, give you that push towards something and be a little bit more direct in that nature, right? And, and it's because now the push comes because they're motivated because they understand the capacity that's within the person through Christ, not the person's ability, not their skill, but the capacity that the Holy Spirit has given that person and it recognizes. And it's for the purpose of that person growing. 2 Timothy 4.2 talks about, talks about this. We know that Paul is writing to the young Timothy and um, in this scripture he's he's saying about um, preaching and he says preach the word be ready in season and out of season for what to reprove to rebuke to exhort with great patience and instruction see how it's done it's not done with a persecutor controlling dominant mindset it is to be corrective it is to teach He's to operate as that, to challenge people, right? To call them into who they are in Christ, right? So 2 Timothy 4.2 is that um, that person helps to give knowledge where, they, where the person might lack it, give instruction, or remind them or call them into something that they have learned or have been discussing or have agreed to, right? Call them into that. And also pushes them to maybe learn something new. Okay, what's the goal? Then learn something new. Try a new skill. Here's where you have to step out. That's the role of the challenger so that this person is operating in their own power through Christ. Right? Not as, not as helpful. And they're not, they're not harsh. It's done with patience and gentleness and kindness. Right? Because you have regard for who the person is in Christ. Okay. Coach. The coach serves to clarify what's important. It helps to equip. So if the challenger is more about exhortation, I would say the coach is more about equipping, right? The challenger is going to be more direct. The coach is going to um, equip through asking questions, right? Helping the person to come to the conclusions, to see things, to draw them into the process for themselves, not just telling them. Right? That's the role of the challenger, to do that. If we're coaching someone, then we're helping to ask questions like, what would it look like if this? How would you know that you had this? Right? How, what do you want? What is your aim? Right? It's bringing the person. How many of you have ever gone through a coaching class, or maybe you are a certified coach in some way, or are familiar? So the techniques with coaching isn't to do, isn't to give the assignment. It's to bring the person into the process for what they want and to help them to see more clearly, to see more clearly for themselves, right? And there, so they operate there as more of a facilitator than a fixer. So if the rescuer just wants to fix, the coach is someone that facilitates. The coach can't get onto the field and play the game. The coach facilitates his players being able to act. First Timothy 1, 5 through 7 is the verse for coaches. Which these, is, these are familiar. No, Second Timothy. Sorry. <laughs> Wait a minute. Second Timothy 1, 5 through 7. We see Paul operating as a coach here. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. 
I recognize who's in you. I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which was first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. See the difference there? I'm recognizing what's in you. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, but I am instructing you. I am reminding you to kindle what's within you. So the coach is the one that reminds the person, this is what we've talked, this is what you've said you want. This is what we know is true. Kindle that in yourself, right? And then he says, um, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, which isn't just shyness, it's not being able to stand, it's powerlessness, right? But of power and of love and discipline, or some versions say what? A sound mind. See how there's a difference in recognizing this person, as good as their efforts could be, doesn't acknowledge that there's anything within that person that can do it. Poor you. Your thinking's all messed up. Let me just... See the difference. It's very important. It's, it, it can start from a good place, a good intention. But we have to operate as this for people. If we are to recognize what's true, if we are to acknowledge who people are in Christ, if we are to do the co-laboring along with them and allow them to live their life. In the, our job is whether that's, listen, okay, never mind. I'm not going to go there. Okay. Sorry. It take too long. I wish we had more time. Anyway. Okay. Good thing we started early. The co-laborer. So their, their eyes are up, right, versus being downcast. They're living Psalm 121, right? They recognize. Listen, it's not about not, not thinking we can do it all. It is recognizing our weakness. But at the same time, it's recognizing that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So it's not positioning ourselves above, right? We still rec- God knows we're weak. He's the one that says it over and over. And he's like, for this reason, this is why I'm giving you this, you know? So, but his strength is perfected in that, right? So it's a healthy understanding. The focus for this person, whereas the, fo- the, the, the motivation for the victim is to alleviate pain, the, the, mot- the, um, the motivation for this co-labor is the outcome or the result or the vision, right? If your perspective is up, you gain vision. You gain vision. And the force behind that is God's grace. Make sense? I'm just going to give you a couple more notes and then we'll go on to the last. So the distinction between, I know this is a lot of uh, stuff to catch and I wish I would have written it all up here for you. But so here's some main distinctions between these two orientations. So this one is fear-based. And this one is hope-based. Based on hope, based on who we know as our hope, right? When we operate recognizing people and the power of God in them as co-laborers in their life, this has um, a proactive action, has proactive actions, and this is reactive. This has happened to me. Now I have to do something versus this is what I am doing. This is what God has called me to do, right? This one tends to think with an asset-based mindset, and this one is deficits. How often do we identify what's lacking, what's missing? You get an assignment, you get a deadline, don't have a budget, don't realize I've already been here five days in a row till 7 p.m. since 7 a.m., right? Got to keep based on assets. What is, what is here? What is possible? What do I have? What have they given me, right? This one looks at possibilities. This one sees, helps see all of the functions. All three roles do function in this, right? And this one sees um, problems. The focus becomes on problems. Everyone here is focused on problems. This one is, this. everyone here is focused on possibilities, which in Christ are endless. We can do all things through Christ, right? It, it's our perspective. Okay. This one, um, there's a lot more I could give you. I'm going to say this one is, this one serves out of love and this one operates out of self. The opposite of love is self. It's not hate, right? Those are just a few differences between them. And you can identify, um, 
Now, doesn't this, if we were to retranslate that into what does a drama-free ministry family marriage look like, that's where these terminologies, this becomes possible there, right? Versus, we always argue, he always says this to me. They never understand. Versus, what about when they didn't? What about when they encouraged me? What about that card they sent me? What about that word that they, oh, they just said that, that text, and it just like caught me, right? Do you see that it's a lifting even to discuss it? But we have to be on guard about it. Okay, so last page, and we'll go very quickly. Nah, I want to be able to take your questions. I won't go through all of this because I wrote it out pretty extensively on this page. So, again, this is where I took some liberty. David Emerald doesn't talk about this in any way in his book. He, he says, how can I shift then? How can we shift from victim to co-labor orientation, right? He writes it from a little bit of a different perspective. But obviously, God's word tells us um, how we do that. Because he has created us as co-laborers, right? We are not victims. We're more than overcomers. We're more than conquerors in Christ. So the first one is to examine your heart. And it comes from Psalm 139. See if there be any anxious way in me, one of the lines says, right? How good, because um, the victim just wants to, oh, just show me. Show me the anxious. I want to face the anxiety. I want to face the fear, the pain, right? And ask yourself, so these are some of the questions we can do. In exam- the first step is to examine our heart condition of our heart, right? What kind of choices am I making? And be specific. Where have my actions been in alignment with someone who's as a co-laborer and been in alignment as a victim, right? And so as we do this for ourselves, then we walk other people through this too. Good for all of us though. Could be a particular relationship, a particular event or circumstance you're facing. How am I seeing that person or that thing as my persecutor, right? And then we walk other people through them too. Honestly identify your fears. Just be honest about it. Nothing's new under the sun. And what kinds of conversations could others hear me having? And then the second is to repent and return. I love that verse where it says, repent and return to the Lord so times of refreshing will come. That verse out of Acts. Times of refreshing come in repentance. So we acknowledge um, that his, you know, he will get, we acknowledge our sin and his forgiveness, but we get refreshed when we do that, Right? And our hearts are purified. The pure in heart see God. This is all based on vision and what we can see and where God is leading us to, right? We need pure hearts to be able to see. And that only comes through repentance and forgiveness. Then our hearts are purified. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Can you see better from a hill than you can from the valley? Yeah. The pure in heart ascend the hill of the Lord. Repent. We have to repent. We have to lead them to repent. So we're not, we're not um, shaming them. We're just leading them to, to gain forgiveness and to gain a pure heart so that they can see better. And we recognize ourselves and others. And then the last one is to walk in a manner worthy of your calling out of Ephesians 4.1 and the four steps there. Give up control. <laughs> Rely on God's power within you. Remember God's grace and respond in your relationships the right way. Um, so I'll give you three biblical examples that you can go back. And now I want you to go back if you want and identify the players in each of the accounts, right? So the first one is Joseph, particularly the part of his um, life where he is imprisoned unjustly because of Potiphar's wife. Isn't that very clear? And what? how did he operate? What was at work there? What could have been? If he were a victim, what, who would have been his persecutor? Who would have been, right? To see how that could play out and what didn't play out and how he trusted God to work, right? Okay, so Joseph is one. The unwise steward, the parable of the talents, Right? Very clear. What does he say? You were, I knew you were an unmerciful and unjust master who took things that weren't his. Perceived or real. The guy, the Bible never says that wasn't true about him. <laughs> Could have been real. I don't know. Probably a little both. But we see. Very clearly, don't we see? And it leads to his destruction and the destruction of his whole family. Not just the loss of his wealth, his, his destruction. And then the final one is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus with his own disciples. Ah. I love this one because the people are hungry. It's dark. And the disciples in their victim mindset, us disciples, what are we doing? They say, it's late and the people are hungry. And this place is desolate. Should we send them home? And he says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And then they go, well, what should we do? <laughs> should we go and spend blah, blah, blah on this month? Oh my goodness, it's so entrenched. These are the guys that are with them every day. 
What should we do then? Spend all the money on bread for these people? When they could go home, right? That's basically, that's how I read it. And he says, no! What do you have? And what do they do? The fishes and the loaves of a little boy that has been there just as long as anybody else. Probably wasn't too good of bread. Fish were dead and stinky. And then he takes it and he operates in the power because he's seated. Even though he's a man teaching on a mountainside, he's seated in the place of all power, all honor, and all authority. And he blesses it and it feeds them. And there's abundance as a result. So not only in that, like you look at the unwise steward, the he loses what he has and his life becomes destroyed. This, they operate in the power of God and they call on God. Jesus didn't multiply those fish as a man. He called on the power of God. And they had what they needed and more. You see the power behind that. So as you look at the biblical examples, then this translates. I know like a lot of you came because this was listed under office management or something. I get it. Listen, I worked a long time as an administrator in church and I operated as a victim all the time. Do they know what this is going to take to pull this off? Do they understand how many steps are involved to pull off an Easter egg hunt? They don't get it. All they want to do is have vision. You're covering your mouth. This was my internal dialogue. And by the way, it leaked out very uh, more frequently than I would have liked it to. I was a lot more mature, I hope. I've repented more, I hope. Right? But I, lit, I worked. And what I did was I let pastors, leaders, my schedule, my lack of time management, I let that all be identified as persecutors so I could justify all sorts of ways to do this. To talk bad made me feel better. To ask someone else to help me Maybe feel better to go and walk, go talk, act passive aggressively. I'm really good at it. <laughs> Persecute someone else. See how that works. Translates into things like ministry and outreach events. But it's not. That's not true. We have to operate in what's true. This is true. If it's true for one, it's true for all. That person that operates with greater strategic mind versus more less tactical is still endowed with the power of God. And, my, and listen, David encouraged himself in the Lord. We, got, we need the body for all of this. This is why we come together. Says don't forsake the meeting so that you can encourage one another, right? But David encouraged himself in the Lord. I gotta coach myself in some things sometimes. I don't always have someone. I gotta coach myself in some things. Ask those questions to myself. Okay, what would this look like if it could be pulled off? What would this look like if there were no limitations to resources? You know what that does? It helps a person that's tactical think as a visionary. What would this look like if budget wasn't a question? It's hard for me to answer that because I, you know. But, or let me check. Come on. Do you know the heart? Do you know, have you agreed to this? Is there a door you could walk if this is not where God, right? All of that. You got to do some of this for ourselves. But in that, you're still empowered. When you face reality, you're empowered. When David saw Goliath, whew, he actually got empowered then. He was taking lunch before them, but when he saw Goliath, he's like, who is this? And his power rose up within him. And we face things. Does that make sense? Okay, we've like three minutes, maybe four minutes. Do you, do you have questions, comments, thoughts? Yes. Okay, so I'm looking at this completely differently, but like, so I'm definitely like, I look at, I'm looking at it ministry-wise. Sure. My husband is a coach. Yeah. And I'm like a challenger, but we slip down into the rest sure. of the persecutor thing all the time. Yeah. So, like, how do you get, I don't know, how do you keep that mindset of challenger coach yeah. when you want to slip down into the persecutor? So ask yourself some of those questions that are on the examine your heart page. Ask yourself, and, and I can also make the notes of like some of these, my scratch available in a better format, but ask yourself, have I started to lose hope? Have I started to operate out of fear? Right? Am I, do I feel like I'm losing control and that scares me? So now I'm trying to dominate or I'm trying to put like, I'm trying to put constraints on something that will tell you if you've slipped down from this to this, right? Or your husband has, right? You've probably seen it moments where he's stressed, where he's not in the word, where there's a lot of time out with people, right? You see that happen. And then all of a sudden he's got, I got to take control. So then he becomes dominant. I'm guessing, right? That's your challenger. Are you? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. But you've seen that in yourself, right? Same thing with coach. Then you have to say, okay, am I wanting to feel needed? Do I feel like I don't matter? 
Do I feel like I have no purpose here? That I'm not bringing about the end result? It's not up to us. But that's what, so if you start to, if you start to sense or experience these things and operate out of those instead of standing, right? So sometimes repentance isn't needed if we're, if we're in the, if we're being proactive and we're examining our hearts, then it's just a matter of standing and declaring what's true, right? It could be an issue of like, okay, let me repent and stay here. Now, what am I going to do? What, so then what you're doing is you're actually seeing yourself this way. Because if you start to do this, then you're going to feel this way anyway. So you're going to start. And then you have to say, okay, if it's an overall picture of something, what's one step I can take toward the accomplishment of that? Just one. Not, not everything all in one day. Just one. Today. Sometimes it's this afternoon. Make sense? Yeah. Anyone else? Questions or thoughts? Thank you, guys. Thank you.